Section twenty eight of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume three by James Boswell, Section twenty eight. Ramsay literature is upon the growth it is in its spring in france here it is rather passe johnson literature was in france long before we had it paris was the second city for the revival of letters italy had it first to be sure what have we done for literature equal to what was done by the stefani and others in france our literature came to us through france caxton printed only two books chaucer and gower that were not translations from the french and chaucer we know took much from the italians no sir if literature be in its spring in france it is a second spring it is after a winter we are now before the french in literature but we had it long after them in england any man who wears a sword and a powdered wig is ashamed to be illiterate i believe it is not so in france yet there is probably a great deal of learning in france because they have such a number of religious establishments so many men who have nothing else to do but to study i do not know this but i take it upon the common principles of chance where there are many shooters some will hit we talked of old age johnson now in his seventieth year said it is a man's own fault it is from want of use if his mind grows torpid in old age the bishop asked if an old man does not lose faster than he gets johnson i think not my lord if he exerts himself one of the company rashly observed that he thought it was happy for an old man that insensibility comes upon him johnson with a noble elevation and disdain no sir i should never be happy by being less rational bishop of st asaph your wish then sir is geraskein dirascomenos footnote greek gyrusko di apola didascomenos i grow in learning as i grow in years Plutarch, Solon. End of footnote. Johnson, yes, my lord. His lordship mentioned a charitable establishment in Wales where people were maintained and supplied with everything upon the condition of their contributing the weekly produce of their labour. And he said they grew quite torpid for want of property. Johnson. 
they have no object for hope their condition cannot be better it is rowing without a port one of the company asked him the meaning of the expression in juvenile unius flecete johnson i think it clear enough as much ground as one may have a chance to find a lizard upon commentators have differed as to the exact meaning of the expression by which the poet intended to enforce the sentiment contained in the passage where these words occur it is enough that they mean to denote even a very small possession provided it be a man's own est aliquid cocunque loco cocunque recessu unius sese dominum fecise lacete footnote tis somewhat to be lord of some small ground in which a lizard may at least turn around dryden juvenile end of footnote this season there was a whimsical fashion in the newspapers of applying shakespeare's words to describe living persons well known in the world which was done under the title of modern characters from shakespeare many of which were admirably adapted the fancy took so much that they were afterwards collected into a pamphlet somebody said to johnson across the table that he had not been in those characters yes said he i have i should have been sorry to be left out he then repeated what had been applied to him i must borrow garagantua's mouth footnote as you like it act three scene two the giant's name is gargantua not garagantua in modern characters the next line also is given tis a word too great for any mouth of this age of size the lines that boswell next quotes are not given End of footnote. miss reynolds not perceiving at once the meaning of this he was obliged to explain it to her which had something of an awkward and ludicrous effect why madam it has a reference to me as using big words which require the mouth of a giant to pronounce them garagantua is the name of the giant in rabelais boswell but sir there is another amongst them for you he would not flatter neptune for his trident or jove for his power to thunder johnson there is nothing marked in that no sir garagantua is the best notwithstanding this ease and good humour when i a little while afterwards repeated his sarcasm on kenrick which was received with applause he asked who said that and on my suddenly answering garagantua he looked serious which was a sufficient indication that he did not wish it to be kept up when we went to the drawing-room there was a rich assemblage besides the company who had been at dinner there were mr garrick 
Mr. Harris of Salisbury, Dr. Percy, Dr. Burney, Honourable Mrs. Chumley, Miss Hannah Moore, etc., etc. After wandering about in a kind of pleasing distraction for some time, I got into a corner with Johnson, Garrick, and Harris. Garrick to Harris. Pray, sir, have you read Potter's Aeschylus? Harris, yes, and I think it pretty. Garrick to Johnson. And what think you, sir, of it? Johnson. I thought what I read of it verbiage, but upon Mr. Harris's recommendation I will read a play. To Mr. Harris, don't prescribe two. Mr. Harris suggested one. I do not remember which. Johnson. We must try its effect as an English poem. That is the way to judge of the merit of a translation. Translations are, in general, for people who cannot read the original. I mentioned the vulgar saying that Pope's Homer was not a good representation of the original. Footnote. Pope, meeting Bentley at dinner, addressed him thus. Dr. Bentley, I ordered my bookseller to send you your books. I hope you received them. Bentley, who had purposely avoided saying anything about Homer, pretended not to understand him, and asked, Books? Books? What books? My Homer, replied Pope, which you did me the honour to subscribe for. Oh, said Bentley, I now I recollect your translation. It is a pretty poem, Mr. Pope, but you must not call it Homer. End of footnote. Johnson. Sir, it is the greatest work of the kind that has ever been produced. Footnote. It is certainly the noblest version of poetry which the world has ever seen, and its publication must therefore be considered as one of the great events in the annals of learning. There would never, said Gray, be another translation of the same poem equal to it. Cooper, however, says that he and a friend compared Pope's translation throughout with the original. They were not long in discovering that there is hardly the thing in the world of which Pope was so utterly destitute as a taste for Homer. End of footnote. Boswell. The truth is, it is impossible perfectly to translate poetry. In a different language it may be the same tune, but it has not the same tone. Homer plays it on a bassoon, Pope on a flagellet. Harris. I think heroic poetry is best in blank verse. Yet it appears that rhyme is essential to English poetry from our deficiency in metrical quantities. In my opinion, the chief excellence of our language is numerous prose. Johnson. Sir William Temple was the first writer who gave cadence to English prose. Footnote. Swift, in his preface to Temple's letters, says, 
it is generally believed that this author has advanced our english tongue to as great a perfection as it can well bear hume wrote in seventeen forty two the elegance and propriety of style have been very much neglected among us the first polite prose we have was writ by a man who is still alive swift as to sprat lock and even temple they knew too little of the rules of art to be esteemed elegant writers mackintosh says swift represents temple as having brought english style to perfection hume i think mentions him but of late he is not often spoken of as one of the reformers of our style this however he certainly was the structure of his style is perfectly modern johnson said that he had partly formed his style upon temples in the last rambler speaking of what he himself had done for our language he says something perhaps i have added to the elegance of its construction and something to the harmony of its cadence End of footnote. before his time they were careless of arrangement and did not mind whether a sentence ended with an important word or an insignificant word or with what part of speech it was concluded mr langton who now had joined us commended clarendon johnson he is objected to for his parentheses his involved clauses and his want of harmony but he is supported by his matter it is indeed owing to a plethora of matter that his style is so faulty Footnote. clarendon's diction is neither exact in itself nor suited to the purpose of history it is the effusion of a mind crowded with ideas and desirous of imparting them and therefore always accumulating words and involving one clause and sentence in another End of footnote. every substance smiling to mr harris has so many accidents footnote johnson's addressing himself with a smile to mr harris is explained by a reference to what boswell said of harris's analytic method in his hermes End of footnote. to be distinct we must talk analytically if we analyze language we must speak of it grammatically if we analyze argument we must speak of it logically Garrick. of all the translations that ever were attempted i think elphinstone's marshal the most extraordinary footnote dr johnson said of a modern marshal no doubt elphinstone's there are in these verses too much folly for madness i think and too much madness for folly burns wrote on it the following epigram o thou whom poetry abhors whom prose has turned out of doors heard'st thou that groan 
proceed no further twas laurelled martial roaring murder End of footnote. garrick he consulted me upon it who am a little of an epigrammatist myself you know i told him freely you don't seem to have that turn i asked him if he was serious and finding he was i advised him against publishing why his translation is more difficult to understand than the original i thought him a man of some talents but he seems crazy in this johnson sir you have done what i had not courage to do but he did not ask my advice and i did not force it upon him to make him angry with me Derrick, but as a friend sir johnson why such a friend as i am with him no Garrick. but if you see a friend going to tumble over a precipice johnson that is an extravagant case sir you are sure a friend will thank you for hindering him from tumbling over a precipice but in the other case i should hurt his vanity and do him no good he would not take my advice his brother-in-law strang sent him a subscription of fifty pounds and said he would send him fifty more if he would not publish Garrick, what is strang a good judge of an epigram is not he rather an obtuse man eh? johnson why sir he may not be a judge of an epigram but you see he is a judge of what is not an epigram boswell it is easy for you mr garrick to talk to an author as you talk to elphinstone you who have been so long the manager of a theatre rejecting the plays of poor authors you are an old judge who have often pronounced sentence of death you are a practised surgeon who have often amputated limbs and though this may have been for the good of your patients they cannot like you those who have undergone a dreadful operation are not very fond of seeing the operator again garrick yes i know enough of that there was a reverend gentleman mr hawkins who wrote a tragedy the siege of something which i refused footnote it was called the siege of aleppo mr hawkins the author of it was formerly professor of poetry at oxford it is printed in his miscellanies boswell hughes's last work was his tragedy the siege of damascus after which a siege became a popular title hannah moore mentions another siege by a mrs b this lady asked johnson to look over her siege of sinope he always found means to evade it at last she pressed him so closely that he refused to do it and told her that she herself by carefully looking it over would be able to see if there was anything amiss as well as he could 
but sir said she i have no time i have already so many irons in the fire why then madam said he quite out of patience the best thing i can advise you to do is put your tragedy along with your irons mrs b was mrs brooke End of footnote. harris so the siege was raised johnson aye he came to me and complained and told me that garrick said his play was wrong in the concoction now what is the concoction of a play here garrick started and twisted himself and seemed sorely vexed for johnson told me he believed the story was true garrick ah uh, i said first concoction footnote that the story was true is shown by the garrick correspondence hawkins wrote to garrick in seventeen seventy four you rejected my siege of aleppo because it was wrong in the first concoction as you said he added that his play was honoured with the entire approbation of judge blackstone and mr johnson End of footnote. johnson smiling well he left out first and rich footnote the manager of covent garden theatre End of footnote, he said refused him in false english he could show it under his hand garrick he wrote to me in violent wrath for having refused his play sir this is growing a very serious and terrible affair i am resolved to publish my play i will appeal to the world and how will your judgment appear i answered sir notwithstanding all the seriousness and all the terrors i have no objection to your publishing your play and as you live at a great distance devonshire i believe if you will send it to me i will convey it to the press i never heard more of it <laughs> footnote hawkins wrote in short sir the world will be a proper judge whether i have been candidly treated by you garrick in his reply did not make the impertinent offer which he here boasts of hawkins lived in dorsetshire not in devonshire as he reminds garrick who had misdirected his letter on friday april the tenth i found johnson at home in the morning we resumed our conversation of yesterday he put me in mind of some of it which had escaped my memory and enabled me to record it more perfectly than i otherwise could have done he was much pleased with my paying so great attention to his recommendation in seventeen sixty three the period when our acquaintance began that i should keep a journal and i could perceive he was secretly pleased to find so much of the fruit of his mind preserved and as he had been used to imagine and say that he always laboured when he said a good thing footnote. boswell beauclerc has a keenness of mind which is very uncommon johnson yes sir and everything comes from him so easily it appears to me that i labour 
when I say a good thing. Boswell, you are loud, sir, but it is not an effort of mind. End of footnote. It delighted him, on a review, to find that his conversation teemed with point and imagery. Footnote. Boswell seems to imply that he showed Johnson, or at least read to him, a portion of his journal. Most of his journal of a tour to the Hebrides had been read by him. End of footnote. I said to him, You were yesterday, sir, in remarkably good humour, but there was nothing to offend you, nothing to produce irritation or violence. There was no bold offender. There was not one capital conviction. It was a maiden assize. You had on your white gloves. Footnote. Hannah Moore wrote of this evening. Garrick put Johnson into such good spirits that I never knew him so entertaining or more instructive. He was as brilliant as himself and as good-humoured as any one else. End of footnote. He found fault with our friend Langton for having been too silent. Sir, said I, you will recollect that he very properly took up Sir Joshua for being glad that Charles Fox had praised Goldsmith's traveller, and you joined him. Johnson, yes, sir, I knocked Fox on the head without ceremony. Reynolds is too much under Fox and Burke at present. He is under the Fox star and the Irish constellation. He is always under some planet. Footnote. He was perhaps more steadily under Johnson than under any else. In his own words, he was of Johnson's school. Gibbon calls Johnson Reynolds' oracle. End of footnote. Boswell. There is no fox star. Johnson. But there is a dog star. Boswell. They say indeed a fox and a dog are the same animal. I reminded him of a gentleman who, Mrs. Chumley said, was first talkative from affectation and then silent from the same cause, that he first thought, I shall be celebrated as the liveliest man in every company, and then, all at once, oh, it is much more respectable to be grave and look wise. He has reversed the Pythagorean discipline by first being talkative and then silent. He reverses the course of nature, too. He was first the gay butterfly, and then the creeping worm. Johnson laughed loud and long at this expansion and illustration of what he himself had told me. We dined together with Mr. Scott, now Sir William Scott, His Majesty's Advocate General, at his chambers in the temple, nobody else there. Footnote. Boswell never mentions Sir John Scott, Lord Eldon, who knew Johnson, and who was Solicitor General when the life of Johnson was published. Boswell perhaps never forgave him the trick 
that he and others played him at the Lancaster Assizes about the years 1786-8. to eight. We found, said Eldon, Jemmy Boswell lying upon the pavement inebriated. We subscribed at supper a guinea for him and half a crown for his clerk and sent him next morning a brief with instructions to move for the writ of quare adhesit pavimento with observations calculated to induce him to think that it required great learning to explain the necessity of granting it he sent all round the town to attorneys for books but in vain he moved however for the writ making the best use he could of the observations in the brief the judge was astonished and the audience amazed the judge said i never heard of such a writ what can it be that adheres pavimento are any of you gentlemen at the bar able to explain this the bar laughed at last one of them said my lord mr boswell last night adhesit pavimento there was no moving him for some time at last he was carried to bed and he has been dreaming about himself and the pavement boswell wrote to temple in seventeen eighty nine i hesitate as to going the spring northern circuit which costs fifty pounds and obliges me to be in rough unpleasant company for weeks End of footnote. the company being small johnson was not in such spirits as he had been the preceding day and for a considerable time little was said at last he burst forth subordination is sadly broken down in this age no man now has the same authority which his father had except a jailer no master has it over his servants it is diminished in our colleges nay in our grammar schools boswell what is the cause of this sir johnson why the coming in of the scotch laughing sarcastically boswell that is to say things have been turned topsy-turvy but your serious cause johnson why sir there are many causes the chief of which is i think the great increase of money no man now depends upon the lord of a manor when he can send to another country and fetch provisions the shoe black at the entry of my court does not depend on me i can deprive him but of a penny a day which he hopes somebody else will bring him and that penny i must carry to another shoe black so the trade suffers nothing Footnote johnson in accounting for the courage of our common people said it proceeds from that dissolution of dependence which obliges every man to regard his own character while every man is fed by his own hands he has no need of any servile arts he may always have wages for his labour and is no less necessary to his employer than his employer is to him End of footnote. 
i have explained in my journey to the hebrides how gold and silver destroy feudal subordination Footnote. he says of a laird's tenants since the islanders no longer content to live have learned the desire of growing rich an ancient dependent is in danger of giving way to a higher bidder at the expense of domestic dignity and hereditary power the stranger whose money buys him preference considers himself as paying for all that he has and is indifferent about the laird's honour or safety the commodiousness of money is indeed great but there are some advantages which money cannot buy and which therefore no wise man will by the love of money be tempted to forego End of footnote. but besides there is a general relaxation of reverence no son now depends upon his father as in former times paternity used to be considered as of itself a great thing which had a right to many claims that is in general reduced to very small bounds my hope is that as anarchy produces tyranny this extreme relaxation will produce freni strictio footnote every old man complains of the petulance and insolence of the rising generation he recounts the decency and regularity of former times and celebrates the discipline and sobriety of the age in which his youth was passed a happy age which is now no more to be expected since confusion has broken in upon the world and thrown down all the boundaries of civility and reverence End of footnote. talking of fame for which there is so great a desire i observed how little there is of it in reality compared with the other objects of human attention let every man recollect and he will be sensible how small a part of his time is employed in talking or thinking of shakespeare voltaire or any of the most celebrated men that have ever lived or are now supposed to occupy the attention and admiration of the world let this be extracted and compressed into what a narrow space it will go Footnote. boswell perhaps had in mind the rambler it is long before we are convinced of the small proportion which every individual bears to the collective body of mankind or learn how few can be interested in the fortune of any single man how little vacancy is left in the world for any new object of attention to how small extent the brightest blaze of merit can be spread amidst the mists of business and of folly End of footnote. i then slyly introduced mr garrick's fame and his assuming the airs of a great man johnson sir it is wonderful how little garrick assumes no sir garrick fortunam reverenta habet footnote fortunam reverenta habe quicumque repente dives ab exiri progrediere loco 
Orsonius Epigrammata. Stockdale records that Johnson said to him, Garrick has undoubtedly the merit of an unassuming behaviour, for more pains have been taken to spoil that fellow than if he had been heir apparent to the empire of India. End of footnote. End of section 28.